Hey, before we dive in, I just want to talk to you about something. You know, I recently hired an intern, which, you know, huge power trip. But I got to tell you, it was a pain in the butt to find this person. I had to talk with a couple different schools. I had to fill out a whole bunch of applications. I had to go through a ton of candidates to find someone who I thought was really great. And by the way, shout out to Kaylee Raglan, who's been absolutely crushing it for me. She's doing an unbelievable job. But, you know, it took a lot of time to find her. And what I should have done is I should have just gone to ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job sites, but they don't stop there with their powerful matching technology. ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and actively invites them to apply for your job. ZipRecruiter makes hiring efficient and effective with features like screening questions to filter candidates and an all-in-one dashboard where you can review and rate your candidates. So you got to do this. You got to go ZipRecruiter.com. And I'm, I'm going to give you a little tip because it's going to make me look good here. Go to www.ZipRecruiter.com slash Zach. That's my name, Z-A-K. Make sure you spell it correctly and check it out. If you need to hire someone, if you're looking to bring someone on board, don't waste time doing the usual recruiting nonsense. Go to ZipRecruiter.com and get the job done there. Okay, I'm done talking. I've talked way too long. Let's go. Here we go. Let's dive in. Episode 51, Chris Swanson. He is a co-founder in The Secretly Group, which is one of the most successful indie labels in the world. Their roster includes acts like Bon Iver and Phoebe Bridgers, which, by the way, did you see Phoebe on SNL the other night? Because it was out of control. She smashed a guitar. She was wearing these skeleton suits. You know, she, she does that, though. That's kind of her thing. Anyway, here we go. Episode 51, Chris Swanson. Let's dive in. So I'm excited to talk about the secretly group and all that, but but I really want to start with with you were the music supervisor for The Dirt, the Motley Crue movie on Netflix. And when I think of the secretly group, I don't really think of heavy metal and 80s, you know, 80s rock. So I'm curious, you know, how'd you get pulled into that project? And I'm also curious what that looks like because there's a soundtrack kind of built into that movie with the yeah. band with the band's music. So I'm kind of curious what that project looked like for you. I mean, like the, uh, first of all, my, I was born in 1975. So hair metal was like the ultimate for me, you know, like when I discovered Motley Crue, Poison, um, Guns N' Roses, like that was, you know, up until 1991 when grunge broke, like I, that was absolutely. That was your thing. Like, that was my thing. Headbangers ball. I wasn't a 120 minutes kid. I was a headbangers ball kid, and I just loved. You know, it's. I just loved it. I loved the big hooks. It was like it felt like because it was. Uh, it felt like underground music with massive pop hooks. You know, underground in that it was definitely not. It was just rebellious music. You know and but the hooks were massive i mean they had, they had pop producers you know like the vocals are so far up the hooks are big you know they're anthems you know there's there's like you know uh power ballads it's just like all the so as a kid it's pushing all my buttons while also being rebellious um in hindsight you know it's corny as hell and the lyrics are don't really a lot of the lyrics don't stand the test of time but um, the, just kind of like the, the dynamic movement in the songs still, you know, like Motley Crue's debut album, Too Fast for Love is a top 20 album to this day for me. I just see it as a power pop album, you know? Right. They changed after that. Uh, and, you know, we're more into girls and partying and stuff. And, um, but I feel like that first album was like, it was like a big star album. The thing I love about that era is that the music is exactly, you said, so hooky, but the musicianship is also incredible. The guitar playing, oh, yeah. drumming. So if you're a musician, yeah. that stuff kind of, you know, kicks that button for you. And then if you're just a music fan, you can still love that. Yeah. Era. It's athletic, you know, it's like, these are pros. It wasn't about like, you know, I, I later got into, you know, like the punk rock ethos. Anyone can be in a band, the anti-elitist, you know, like it's not about skill level it's about express self-expression you know i definitely got into that you know and, and, and was embarrassed by my 
paramedal days for a, a good period of time but um that's the shit that like made me fall in love with with like uh music on the margins you know right okay wait so how do you get the gig to do the dirt for netflix who calls you to do that um uh i my co-music supervisor joe rudge who's really talented music supervisor he's incredible he called me up he got uh he got hit up about it and he was really excited about the opportunity but he was a little worried about having the capacity for it because it involved we had to go to new orleans for the month before shooting for pre-production because we had to like it was a lot of it wasn't just licensing music for a film it was a lot of like basically um we were basically music film producers uh focused on music in that we had to um we had to uh there was so much on-screen playing and these were actors that we had to like find coaches to teach these actors how to like look like musicians on camera. Holy cow. And, and there was just so much. And so we were looking at all details in the film that had to do with music. That's, you know, I actually remember watching and thinking that everybody looked, everything looked very accurate playing wise. That was a lot of work. And then did you have to figure out because I because there were some re-records there. So did you supervise that also kind of re-recording the songs and making sure that it stayed authentic? All the live, all the live recordings, we, we, we hired a producer, Howard Benson, to uh, create um, not only the, the live performances that the band uh, mimed to, but um, also the um, like when in the practice space when they were trying out Mick Mars um like just the, the playing of the songs and stuff like the bad version and the slightly less bad version and then the, oh we could do this version you know like that was we had to have those created and and it was i mean it was there was there were so many details it was very it was the most work i've ever put into a film project very fulfilling um it's and so much fun to kind of like exercise those uh those hair metal like muscles you know um, I was like, I, there's times where I'm like, I put my first 10,000 hours of, of music listening into, you know, hair bands that don't, like, I keep trying to find new applications for like that love, you know, and, and that insight, in, you know, in my, in my career today, and I keep hitting walls, I can't, there's just nothing you know, and uh, and so finally, this was like, oh, this is perfect. I, I, I was meant to do this. You know, um, and it just felt good to kind of be able to apply my love for the music. No secretly, hair metal imprint on the horizon yes. that we should you know. know. Uh, Numero Group is working on a hair metal uh, comp from the from the eighties. Okay, so so it's coming. Stay tuned. Yeah. Look out. Well, the only thing is, is like the crazy thing about it, and I'm not very much help on that because. Um, Pretty much every band that was making music of that ilk from like 79, 78, 79 to 1990 got signed by a major label. Like there's not, there's not like this bevy of un underground unsigned uh, recordings out there of era of that ilk. Um, and so it's, and I don't, and like, uh, you know, there's people that, People on the Numero team that dig much deeper, Adam, who's leading the project, like he's gone deep and you know down YouTube wormholes and stuff, and has found stuff that is available, but it's stuff that I've never heard of. Like I only know of the major label stuff. Yeah, right. That's a good point, though. There's not there, there's not really an underground scene when it comes to like hair metal. It's you kind of know what you what you know. There's well, only yeah. If it was metal, it was that was like almost like a commercial version of punk rock and it all got it was like a gold rush you know it all got signed all of it right 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 or you or we we, we don't know about it. we don't know it and they weren't putting out 45s you know um i guess they were putting out cassettes and but it's just like it's it's crazy that there's not much and um yeah and when you listen to it it's not like oh there's all these gems you know it's it's, it's I feel like it was a well-mined uh, genre. Could that sound have some kind of resurgence? It's weird because that sound seems so dated in where it came from, but you do, it, it feels like we're on 
kind of like if you think about the cycles of music, it feels like we're kind of in the 70s thing with acts like Greta Van Fleet kind of pushing that yeah. 70s sound. And then do you think we could circle the back? Darkness, the darkness I felt like was the moment where it might happen, but I just feel like maybe the sound, the problem is you have to really do a lot of work to divorce it from the misogyny. Um, and yeah, it's it's tough. I, I actually think that now we're in the 90s. We're in the post grunge era now of, of like revivalism i think it'll be a minute before someone does i think it could happen um but i was surprised that when the darkness hit that there wasn't a wave of this you know interesting i do yeah, think I, don't, I don't know it's a good question it's also especially in nashville it feels like we're deep into the 90s trend right yeah. now yeah it's sure. interesting how that kind of maybe happens across genres so secretly the first original signing uh, songs Ohio and he gave you this challenge of traveling to New York to yeah. sign him and it, it was this whole thing and what I'm really curious about is like because I've thought about if I were to start a label and convince an artist to sign over their masters to me like masters right now are like a hot topic in the media or they were right. last year it felt like like I feel like that's a lot of pressure to have someone's masters when you're an unknown unproven entity I'd almost feel guilty like who am I to take this guy's masters how did you like how, how did you convince him to give you the master? Did he give you the master? Was there a deal in place? Like what he did gave that us the he, he handed us a dat and a cassette tape of the dat and we just listened to the cassette which had two songs on repeat for like 19 hours. And uh, the, it back you would, that was yours or you could control that monetize that for perpetuity essentially. Yeah. Well, I don't we that wasn't conveyed at the time. It was just a handshake deal. We didn't really go into details on what what rights were being conveyed, and so you know he it was it was for a seven inch pressing. You know, um, later on we defined what it was that we that he was agreeing to for for the stuff that he'd, we'd already released by him and whatnot. But at the time, you know, I think the spirit of it at the time, but also you know, it was pre-streaming. It was sync licensing was not a thing that artists that indie artists. You know, if if you had a song in a movie, you were a seller. You know, uh, and it's, it's crazy. Like, I think Jason was a very extreme example of it. Jason Molina, he sent CDs to like zines. Zines would write him and say, hey, I'm putting together a compilation to include in my zine, you know, 1997, all the way through like early 2000s. Yeah. You know, would you want to contribute a song? And he sent CDRs of songs saying, yeah, pick one to... I, more than dozens a baker's dozen over a hundred i'm sure there there are people have masters of you know he sent them the only recording of songs or on cassette or whatever to so many people like just the other day um this filmmaker named james bolton who i've been friends with for like 20 years sent me uh three recordings that he'd sent him he's like hey you know i'm, I'm working on a film maybe you could send me a couple songs uh, for I, I could consider to include in the soundtrack. And Jason sent him three songs he recorded the day he dropped them in the mail, two instrumentals and one vocal, and said, yeah, do whatever. And he, those are the only known recordings of them. You know, and he sent them to me. And it's just like Jason was just, you know, he treated them like, almost like, you know, what I imagine Charles Bukowski did, you know, in the 60s and 70s, sending off, you know, the only copy of a poem to, like, a journal you know they didn't feel that precious to him or, or it didn't yeah this was just he was very working class you know and this is just like something that he did and um yeah not precious at all um and also he's you know he's a student of history so it was like um i think he loved the idea of leaving his breadcrumbs all over the place for people to maybe discover in small pockets you know little time capsules here and there you know and you know and, and it's okay if they disappeared because if they you know if, if, if they disappeared, they weren't going to last. Yeah. Is that the key of uh, of starting a new label? Is it find people who aren't so precious with their art in a weird way, or that they're willing to take chances on others with their art? Because it feels today like like there's so much, you know, hype maybe mm -hmm. around masters. Did it feel different twenty years ago, or, or in the nineties? It, it did feel different. Um, like no one really thought so much about that then. There wasn't really. The, comp the public conversation wasn't happening. You know, now I think it's more about can you add value to the development 
of the artist and the marketing of the artist, you know, and and, and, and adding capital to the project, you know, and all that, you know. And so I think it's a real business decision by artists on whether or not they want to they want to work with you and convey convey any rights, share rights with you. You know, that's I think the fundamental question that that you know all labels or distributors or anyone who's kind of dealing with um, music rights, they have to at first ask themselves and then be able to demonstrate to artists. Um, um, back then, I think it, it wasn't as, it was more, I think, intuitive, you know, and I think there's pockets of, of the music industry right now, certain genres that where there's, you know, a little bit um, where this conversation isn't resonating as loudly. It's just, it's, it's a little bit more like, like uh, underground indie rock was in the late 90s. You know, I think it's kind of ebbs and flows, you know, it's a, it's a process. So, I mean, the it was kind of successful right away, that first record, right? And and then you guys started building distribution channels kind of famously in the Secretly Story, where you guys start working on your own distribution and you started yeah. distributing other records. And I'm curious, like w there were four of you that were doing this or there was a group of people, so there was a lot of manpower, yeah. but you started distributing other records how did you guys sort of crack the distribution code? Were you, did you have more hustle than the other labels? Did you have more like, no, or, or like, why were you guys the label in your group that were able to sort of figure out this distribution problem or situation or whatever? You I, would think, I think so. Like we were doing at first the same thing that like um, all these other peer labels that were popping up, you know, and, you know, uh, with entrepreneurial spirit trying to establish themselves. Um, when it came to selling records, you know, we started off by just, we'd reach out to any distributor that we, we weren't really hitting up stores direct. That seemed like a bridge too far, but we would hit up all the mail orders, all the distributors. There are different categories of, you know, of customers that were buying in bulk. Um, you know, and we we're trying to, it was like a, it was almost like, you know, like a baseball card checklist, you know, where, you know, you'd check off every territory. I was like, okay, we have someone in Japan now, you know, can we get someone in, uh, can we get someone in Mexico? You know, and you're just trying to, you know, oh, we can get two in Japan. And not, not to sound too much like a Gen Z, but like at, at that time, because this is in like the 90s, were you just going through trade mags or were you just calling? Um, How are you figuring yeah. out distributors in Japan? Trade magazines. And like if you got on the phone with somebody, some people would reach out to you because they'd read about, about your seven inch you just put out. Or you just kind of talk to other people doing it and you'd hear about someone yeah and then you'd cold call someone or send them a fax you know it was strange not a lot was done via some there was some emailing i guess at the time but it wasn't crazy like we all shared one email address on one computer for a while you know it was it was weird but we were just kind of putting together this like um amalgamation of you know this this or maybe a constellation of of, uh, of customers um, and it was one thing to be able to get them to order from you or answer the call, but then, and then you'd be like, okay, we want them to like pay for them, you know, or, or, okay, you sold through your stock. Will you order more? Will you restock? Or now we have a new title. Will you order it? And, and you found you just, you really needed to have reasons to, for them to care about you. You could tell you, we were pretty low on the, on the food chain. They weren't going to pay us much mind. You know, and there were many milestones that you wanted them to pay you lots of mine because there was this was our way of you know we wanted to ship records out and for them to sell out. It was real. It it, it just fed us when you shipped off a hundred forty fives to to the Netherlands. Man, that put some pep in your step. You felt like you were um, engaged in in the process of music culture. You know, you were more than just a consumer. You know, and. Uh, and so, the, you know, it didn't take long for us to realize that the real, um, the biggest catalyst for, um, for them to take you seriously and for you to climb up the food chain would be to have new releases, ideally that, they, that they've heard of or that, that there are some selling points to. Right. Um, and so we just, when, when we reached, we just reached out to other labels run by one person. Like at the time, Jag was, Jag Jaguar was owned just by Darius. Temporary Residence Limited was owned by Jeremy Devine. Western Vinyl was owned by Brian Sampson. Megalon was owned by Chad Bidwell. Made in Mexico was owned by James Morelos. You know, and we would hit up these guys and be like, "Hey, you know, you are one person, one person operation. We have 
we're like drowning in people. We have like four people. We don't know what to do with all of our time. Will you let us be your sales force? You know, we'll only take 50 cents per unit, which was ridiculous. In hindsight, it's so, that's so, so funny. Um, it's like seeing an old movie and seeing you know, like the gasoline sign say like, you know, 29 cents. Yeah, um, right. And uh, so, yeah, it was, uh, we, you know, we just kind of pieced it together and we saw it start to work. You know, we would, we would have new releases like at least every other month and they were getting interesting. Um, and we were able to kind of, by doing it more often, we were also able to kind of, we, we, we used to like design every invoice, you know, design it, you know, and, and like place the font and everything. And then we were like, okay, this, we have, this is going too slow. Let's get quick. We need to settle on invoice. <laughs> yeah. This is, you know, and so it's like, we had to build systems faster and we we're just constantly innovating, you know, and that was one side of it. And then we had another, you know, a couple of us were really focused on distribution and sales and those systems. And a couple of us were really focused on how do we get our CD and our vinyl rates cheaper, you know, and that was also quantity based, you know? And so we were just constantly trying to um, improve in those areas while also trying to sign cool artists, retain cool artists, have the art, you know, always outdo ourselves with cool packaging, you know? How long did it take for the company to be profitable? Yeah, totally. Um, at least five years, I'd say. Um, we maybe had our first profitable year by year four or five, and then it took a couple more years for us to kind of make up for the investment of the first few years. But uh, we had profitable records, you know, like songs high. Like every time we put, like the first one, we sold a thousand of the first forty-five. The First debut, the debut full length. I think we pressed two thousand CDs and one thousand LPs, um, and then we repressed them. You know, and then when, when it got time for the next album, um, Axis and Ace, or no, we did the Heckler and Griper EP, and I think we pressed three thousand or four thousand. You know, <clears throat> and then by Axis and Ace, I think we did eight thousand. You know, it's just like wow. But then we were also investing in unknown artists. You know, and you're always paying for next year's releases also. So it was really cash flows. Did you ever think, because I don't, you've never had outside, you did, uh, you worked in college radio and, and you would promote shows, but did you ever, ever have like an actual industry job at like a real, at a, at a more, at a, a priorly established label or anything? No, so, record store jobs and, and radio. Yeah. No. So did you ever think as you're doing this for five years, you know, year three, you're like, this thing still isn't profitable. We're having some cool moments, but did you ever look at friends at labels or anything and, and did you ever think oh god maybe i should have gone down that path or were you so committed to the secretly path i think we were stimulated enough by all the innovations and improvements that we were making we were stimulated you know this was it wasn't dull I, we were it felt like we were a machine that was constantly learning and growing and and engaging with ever more exciting um, artists, you know? Um, and, you know, and then in 1999, which was, you know, year three, um, uh, we, um, I became, you know, invested in Jack Jaguar. And so then we had two things and we were trying to figure out how us, we worked together. It was that same year that we decided in order to help get our manufacturing prices low, we had to have high volume going through some of these packaging vendors and CD and vinyl vendors um, that we would start to, for these distributed labels that we were distributing, we would manage their production, you know? So then we'd go, we could go to like a CD plant and say, hey, we will guarantee, we will press 100,000 CDs this year. We had no idea how we were gonna do it. That was a stretch. We were like, um, yeah, we were like faking it till you make it. But as a result, it shaved nine cents off our manufacturing price, which felt like, a lottery ticket had just been, you know. Did, did you hit the number? Yeah, and we did. You know, we were lucky. Like, we did eventually, you know, by month six, like, the Pater the Line album came along and sold 40,000 copies in, in a year, you know. So, like, we started to piece it together. And it was it was exciting, you know. And it, it, I think it was around 2000 that our, our, our founding partner, Eric Weddle, decided he was going to leave. I think the our kind of... Um, our, our, our expansionist tendencies was not quite boutique enough for him. He really wanted to nurture something much more uh, 
you know, weird and outside and, you know, and not have to worry about kind of uh, the, our constant chasing of getting numbers, getting things cheaper and, 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 and sales uh, numbers getting higher. You know, he really wanted to foster like this, the weirdest garden in the world, you know, and he did with Family Vineyard, you know. Um, and so like we, we had enough changes happening in those first five years that I don't, the big, I think the big existential question we had, not so existential, but the big question was like, are we going to stay in Bloomington, you know? Because eventually we were all done with college and uh, Chicago was just four hours to the north and all our favorite labels and bands were there. And uh, it's like, are we going to leave or are we going to, you know, we'd kind of figured out how to live very cheaply and operate very cheaply in Bloomington. And also, I think we would have, we were scared of getting up to Chicago and having, you know, imposter syndrome and being around all our idols and everything. Did you uh, ever like, I think like an advantage of living in a music city like Nashville is like not during COVID, but non COVID times, I can go out to a bar and meet someone who, you know, could change my life. You know, there's so much deal flow just by existing in a, in a major. You didn't have that. You didn't have that. Like, did you, did you miss that? Or was that part of the secret sauce somehow? I don't think we really, I mean, I think theoretically we knew about that, but we didn't really know. Um, because I remember when I started to, spend more time in New York, you know, when we opened our office in New York and started to spend time in other like, you know, major market cities, you'd be like, oh, the scales would fall from your eyes and you would be like, okay. Holy shit. Yeah. I, I think we were blissfully ignorant to that. And I think it was, you know, and we were, we were like very deliberately fostering, like, let's keep it weird. A, we're in a non-major market. B, we're you know we're landlocked in the middle of the country. Um, we we, but, but you know I felt like you know when we would talk to people like how are you doing that in Bloomington? You know we'd be like well we we we're able to work harder. We're able to recharge faster. You know, and you know I think you just get more bang for your you know buck when it comes to your your energies. You know. Um, yeah, totally. But you know it, it was in our blind spot. You know. And it kept, I do think it really, um, it allowed us to nurture a real kind of unique, our own personality. And we weren't necessarily, although, you know, we were, chill. we were like, we, we were watching what, you know, our favorite labels were doing, Merge, Drag City, Touch and Go. Um, and, and just like, we weren't keeping it that weird. We were just like, the junior league versions of, of what they were doing, but we were very industrious, you know? Um, right, right, right. I've so. heard you say, I, I think I've heard you say this, that there was a moment in the label's history, and I think it was around the second Boney Vare record, where you felt like the, the label was really going from like a mom and pop label to becoming more of like maybe a, you know, a set business or, you know, whatever that means. Yeah. What did that look like? And I'm curious, as you're expanding quickly, and now I think there's something like 150 people that work at the label, as you're expanding quickly, did you have to hire people with different knowledge? Did you did you have to did you and your team have to learn really quick? Like at around that second Boney Bear record, if I have that timeline correct, like what started happening with the label? Man, so much. Like uh, I think we started to really specialize. Um, you know, um, I think rather than all of us, and I think we'd started this process before, but by then we were really, I think, committed to the path of let's not be redundant versions of each other. Let's focus on, you know, we created like, there's an A&R department, there's a marketing department, there's an operations department, you know, and really try to specialize. And, and, and uh, not only did we, by specializing each of us, um, and we were able to, and, and have more um, defined roles for everybody. Um, part of that is just getting, uh, more nerdy about that specialty. Another part is trusting other people on their specialty and not second guessing it so much. So I think a big part of it has been just like, how do we really trust people to, to make calls and make decisions and, and feel empowered to, to do their job and not be, you know, backseat driving everything or second guessing one another, you know, it's, and I think that that not only decreased a lot of stress, um, you know, but it allowed us to do, you know, 
Um, but that was a big part of it. Um, you know, and it wasn't until the last, like I'd say, you know, it's been the last five years that we actually started to, uh, well, even before then, I'd say around 2011, 2012, when that, when Bon Iver, Bon Iver came out is when we started to hire people who had done the job before. That's what I was going to ask. Is yeah. That, yeah. It was kind of novel because we were very much like came from, uh, you know, it's like start off on an entry level job, start off in the warehouse, you know, start off, you know, as a, you know, as an assistant um, and then, you know, slowly climb up, the, you know, climb through this, the system, you know, and, and not only do you end up having like this really deep insights into all the different nooks and crannies and in the processes, but uh, you know, you're, you're, your vocabulary becomes so rich, you know, like some of our, um, our most important uh, and, and longest uh, standing employees who've been, been with us for over 10 years have had like six, seven months, you know, like Chris Wells, who runs our um, distribution company, uh, yesterday was his 17 year working with it, you know, and he's done, did many things, you know, starting in the warehouse. And uh, it's, so that that's exciting, but we did start to be like, okay, it's awesome, you know, kind of where everyone, this is everyone's first job, you know, um, first post-college job, you know, um, and you just kind of, you know, you love music, you love music culture, great, strap in, let's do this. Um, I think, you know, we started to learn that if you hire somebody who's, who's trained elsewhere, you know, and comes with, with the passion uh, and the expertise that it's like, oh, interesting, that's awesome. You know, and you can kind of hit the ground runner. And, and then you also get um, a set of ideas that weren't indoctrinated by you. You're not, you know, you're outside the group thing, you know, it's like, oh, interesting. And then you start, start to learn. Right. Um, you know, and it's, it's, it's really, that, that's interesting. So I think we started to do that more and learned a lot, you know. Um, you know, and I'd, I'd say, you know, in the early years, we weren't great at, like, like, especially when we started to hire people who had done the job before, you know, we weren't, we weren't experts at like doing job interviews with people, you know. Um, we've definitely gotten better over the years and knowing what, what to look for and everything. So you started the company with one of the partners was your brother mm-hmm. and your dad actually started a company with his brother also, right? A, a yeah. vitamin company. Any inspiration there watching him do it growing up? Did he ever give you advice on how to work with your brother? I think it was very much, in, it was instinct. You know, it was like watching that happen and be like, oh, that's a good model, you know? Um, but yeah, no, it's uncanny. Like when Ben and I look back at it and compare the growth of uh, their company that they started and the growth of our company and just like the, the many different layers and chapters of it, it's like, wow, it's remarkably similar. My dad passed away when I was 21, so it's it wasn't like I was able to get right when we only put out a couple. We were prepping our first two releases, uh, "Songs of High" and "June Pant." So it's not like I was able to Ben or I were able to get direct advice from him. You know, we got some advice from our uncle, Uncle Lee, but um, it was more, uh, I think, just intuition, dumb luck, and yeah, it's just it's shocking how if you were to overlap. The Venn diagram developmentally, how remarkably similar, like the the vitamin and health supplement business is, and the like the you know releasing like in, independent music is. It's crazy. And their company is still around, still yeah. still yeah. still crushing it. So uh, health products, it's yeah. it's out. So where's the line with all the channels and avenues that Secretly Group has, you know, kind of going after like a Barry Gordy to kind of model or everything is done in-house. Now you guys add a management company, you guys just mm-hmm. buy another label. Where's the line of being, you know, a master of none and having and having strength in all of the um, departments that you have? And I'm curious, yeah. can you ever add a live division? There's no live division at Secretly yeah. Group, right? Well, I I find it, I I am proud of the moments where we um, kind of recognize it's one thing to go and start new things or add new divisions and everything. I am proud of the moments where we um, closed a division or divested, you know, like we're no longer in management, for instance. Oh, Um, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or when the, 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 um, the, the manufacturing business that was the core to us. For so long, we don't do that anymore. Um, and those 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 were tough because you know you start to get um, you start to fall in love with 
the um, how you self-identify with certain aspects of it. But I think you know it's like listen. What I, I think what we're really good at is adding value to um, the recorded work for um, performing artists and or or their or their um, publishing work. I think that's that's a core competency for us. And we, we also happen to be very good at um, um, working as a distributor and working with other companies or artists directly um, in taking their recordings to market as a distributor. I think those are our core competencies and that's what we really try to focus on. So I think any, um, any new endeavors that we're focused on are going to be in one of those two buckets. Um, and I think I think it's it's just kind of recognizing, yeah, we don't we we really should focus on what we're great at, and not try to become great at a lot of other things, you know. So it's kind of um, scaled back. Did you almost yeah. have to go through everything to fit, to sort of get there? Did you have to try yeah. a whole bunch of stuff, throw it against the wall, and now you're yeah. sort of, you know what what you're you know what you're really good at, and what what the company. And it's exciting to be part of a management company and to try to grow. We love growing things. Um, and you know, it's, it's fun. It's, it's like very fulfilling to, to kind of try to meet the, the myriad challenges head on. But, um, you know, and, and I thought personally that it would be like, you know, just seeing the inside baseball and, you know, and all that of, of, of a management company, even though I didn't personally want to be a, a frontline manager, um, would be great. And then, you know, it's kind of like, man, we have enough inside baseball, you know, we got a label and a publisher and a distributor. We don't even yeah, have it's like, we're good. You know, let's just instead be, you know, try to find ways to um, support management companies that we like in other ways, but we don't have to be, we don't have to be a partner. What's the biggest pot of revenue for the secret of the group? And the reason I'm curious is because I'm curious if you were to start a label today, mm -hmm. what revenue stream would you chase after? Would it be streaming? Would it be sync? Would it be publishing? Or if you were to just start like a music rights company today? I mean, they're symbiotic, but um, I, streaming is definitely um, the biggest um income category right now but you know like you like sync revenue not only is significant but it's uh it's in, in a, you know crucial developmental tool because you know it's like radio in a lot of ways especially in the era of shazam and it, you know and it leads to streaming stories you know like if you, you know the if you go to look at top streaming tracks some of it might for, for an artist some of it might be a result of of playlisting um, but a lot, you know, but a lot of playlisting is, you know, or, but a lot of it's sync, you know, it's, it's a result of sync and people going listening, but also, and then that informs what gets on playlists, you know, so it's all, it feeds in. in it's, all, it's all a cycle. The streaming yeah. is the, uh, is, is huge, I guess, makes sense. That's the, uh, that's the saving grace right now. Yeah. For the same reason, you know, it's just like, you know, I'm so torn. I love, I love listening to my vinyl, you know, it's. It's it's a beautiful experience, especially in a more social environment. But at the same time, I'm I'm addicted to you know I'm addicted to like my feeding my algorithm. You know, it's like the you listen to your label's vinyl and you get the vinyl for free. The label doesn't make any money if you listen. To <laughs> yeah. you're you're paying yourself to listen to music. Phoebe yeah. Bridgers on SNL this Saturday. I'm pumped. I I can't wait to see it. I'm so excited. Yeah, Here it's gonna go. be so great seeing her seeing her on there. Are you going to go out for it or, or, or no? Oh man, I wish I could, but COVID restrictions don't, um, it's super tight. Yeah, it's tight, it's tight, yeah. They're, they, they're, they're down to um, very few people that they're letting in the building. It's, you know, the only late night that's happening to have like that. So. Are you going to be tracking consumption before and after the performance? Is someone on the team? Well, oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's the fun stuff, you know, the, 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 the baseball stats, you know, that stuff is super fun. It's that's fun to geek out on it, you know? Um, that, that, but also, you know, I think what I'm most excited about is just, uh, I can't wait to see she watching how she's taken every, um, every opportunity to perform in front of people, especially during COVID, um, whether it's late night or, um, or live streams, you know, and how she makes it special. That's, I think that's what really makes her stand apart, you know, and she's had, more opportunities than a lot of artists so you think that she you know the concepts that she bring to the table would become exhausted but she just keeps digging deeper so yeah i'm i'm just excited to see and to hear, hear her perform 
I can't wait to see it. And she just started a, her own imprint with you guys, Satisfactory, right? Yep. So when, like, what, how, how does an artist convince you guys to start an imprint with them? How, how's that conversation? What was that conversation look like? It didn't take much arm twisting, to be honest. Um, I think um, she's not frivolous, you know? I think when, uh, when she has an idea, it's usually the product of, uh, it's not a hot take, you know, it's usually the product of a lot of, uh, a lot of baking, you know, and, and, um, and she had, she definitely um, baked this idea for a long time, going back to before we'd worked together, you know, it's like it's, uh, a dream she's always fostered. And, um, you know, I, I think that there wasn't a moment where we didn't think that she was not only deathly serious, but also, you know, like could be really good at it. Yeah. Um, and so I think early on, it was more like just a lot of conversations on, you know, it's like, hey, you know how we do it. You know what our system and process is for artist development, at least a, one version of it. Um, here's, here's kind of how we look at, you know, signing artists, you know, and here's, you know, and like partnering with an artist is a big deal, you know. Right. Like kind of going back to what you were talking about earlier with the, you know, it's a big deal when an artist trusts you. A lot of pressure. To with you. <laughs> yep. It's, it's, it's big, you know? And so it's like, here's how we approach it. We don't approach it casually. And, uh, you know, over the course of a few conversations, we realized that, you know, it was a very compatible vision. Um, and, you know, that we, we could, we could be successful at this and this would be a lot of fun. And so it was like, you know, it's like, yeah, let's add this dimension to how we work together. And it's been a blast. You know, I've been really busy with it the last six months. That's awesome. Ben, we have, we have covered a, a lot of ground. We've brushed through the history of Secretly, talked <laughs> releases, SNL this Saturday with Phoebe Bridgers. Have we left anything unsaid? What's been, what's been left out here? Oh, wow. I don't know. Um, I think that's... Who does, what I love about, one of the things I love about Secretly is I love your logos, which to me, what I love about them is that they they look like very classic, like they could be in a rack with like Atlantic, Electra, Island track, like they could be among classic logos, but they have their mm -hmm. own kind of look and brand to them. Who, cool. who did that? Just a designer out by you guys or, or who, who came up with the logos? We've got great designers, you know, um, you know, uh, yeah, Miles and Nate um, are incredible, world-class designers. They've been with us for many years now. Before them, um, Daniel Murphy um, was, uh, um, he does design for Merge now. He, he, he's an incredibly talented designer and was um, an author of some of those logos. Um, uh, the, Darius Ben and I, um, did some early designing. Darius designed the, the, the classic Jag logo and Ben and I designed stuff. My high school best friend, Chris Corneo designed the, the very first uh, secretly Canadian, we call the Hobo logo. Um, and uh, yeah, it's just a lot of really smart people, you know, with, with talent and great taste, you know, that, that are looking for that kind of timeless, timeless uh, logo. So. I love the logos and the company is called secretly Canadian. I, I want to be sure I have this right. It's called secretly Canadian because was this like an inside joke that you love the talent in Canada that if you saw people that were really great, but not Canadian, you'd be like, Oh, that person's secretly Canadian. Is that where the name comes from? Oh, I mean, it's a, that's a good application of it, but, um, and, and close, but not quite, uh, the Canadian wave of just like timeless, you know, uh, classic indie rock happened after we started the label. Um, it kind of goes back to like uh, high school and college, hanging with your friends late night. And, uh, and it's, that, it's that moment when you first realize that um, Neil Young was Canadian. You're like, wait, but he's always flying an American flag. Really? He's from Toronto? And you're like, oh, he's Canadian. And then you start to kind of think about it. And you're like, oh, that makes sense. He actually is pretty Canadian if you think about it. And then, and then you know, you're like, Leonard Cohen's from Montreal, and you're like, oh, and you start to connect the dots. You you know, because when I like looked, Rush was Canadian, it blew my mind. I was a massive, oh, and you know, like of course, you know, then they define, you know, they they are the archetypal, and but and then you start to do the math. And you're like, well, you know, you know, this is high school. You know, so you're like, Tori Amos, she's got to be Canadian, then, right? And you're like, no, she's Brad not. Yeah, they're Canadian. Well, that one's a little obvious, but um, <laughs> yeah, you know, but it's like maybe maybe she's secretly Canadian, you know. 
uh, and and at the time I had I had um uh and so you just go down these kind of like these paths you know that are, that they're they're there's no of no consequence but uh at the time I remember I'd reread uh, the Catcher in the Rye oh yeah and there's a there's a part where uh, Holden Caulfield is talking about he's daydreaming about the girl and he's like talking about if she's a whistler and you know she's probably a fantastic whistler you know and like secretly we're probably all terrific whistlers. And there was just something about the cadence of, of the Salinger um, prose that I loved and just secretly just was a really kind of potent word um, to me for a while. And I think that married with like secretly Canadian, this whole Canadian, like what is the, what, what is the, like the, 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 the thing that, that je ne sais quoi that separates a Canadian from an American, like just as a, like uh, just kind of uh, vibe wise, you know? Um, and uh, when we were think, trying to think of a, just a, a name for the label, it didn't really mean anything. That it just whatever. Um, that was the one that kind of when you pulled it out of the hat, that was the least annoying to us. There yeah. is something to the secretly brand, which is hard to articulate, but you kind of know what it feels like, or you kind of know what it looks like. Mm -hmm. That everyone, even if they are very different, they all somehow fit into that feeling. And even sub with Jag Jaguar, Dead Oceans, or, or even with the mm -hmm. sub, it feels like there's even, it, it's refined even more. I don't really know. It's hard to explain what it is, but even if you look at the well, sub, I'm glad you feel that. I, I feel that, you know, and I, I you know, like uh, there's that thread that kind of, that kind of goes through it, goes through everything, you know. I think that kind of, you know, part of it is like the thing early on that was important to us is just like, let's, um, by staying in Bloomington and really, um, Kind of uh, nurturing those roots, um, you know. It's still our headquarters and our, you know, our heart and soul in, in, in a lot of ways. Um, I think being there and not kind of getting caught up in the rot, rat race of you know of like a bustling city, you know, in a, in a, in a just um, a scene that that is just thriving um, and going at you know just at a much uh, I, I think just like crazier vibration. I think we were able to really kind of center ourselves and figure out like, what is it that we want to express? You know, what is it that we like, you know, and it is always evolving. We're always adding new layers to the onion, but I do feel like, um, you know, having that point of view is something that, um, that we value. You know? Absolutely. So what's the best way if you're like a young artist mm -hmm. and you're like secretly label group, my dream label, I've been dying to be on secretly been following them forever. I want to. I want someone to hear my music there. What's the best way? Do you track down an A&R guy, send them a DM? Is it to track down your email and send you an email? Do you listen to you know non-solicited? I don't listen to. I don't listen to anything sent to me as a DM, uh, only because. Uh, it's I, I, yeah, it's just too much. I just can't. I just don't. I can't. Um, send it to Ben at secretlygroup.com. No, um, uh, the best way, yeah, track down one of our. A&R people, you can That's figure it out. strategic way, track down an A&R guy or, or gal, send it yep. to them. They're going to look at it. That's you can figure out who they are. It doesn't take that. It's not that hard. Not that hard. Figure out who the A&R people are. Send them the, the music. Yep. If it's good, maybe maybe you'll hear back. If it's a catchy album. Yeah, the thing is, is like our A&R team is they're really nice, open-hearted people, you know? Like they – and they're – Ever looking to be surprised, you know, and so like if you can find them, they'll probably probably listen to it. They'll probably listen to it. Ben, oh Chris, I mean, I also call you Ben. Chris, where you are? Thanks for taking the time, Chris. Yeah. So appreciate it. This yep. is so fun. Such a fan of the music, such a fan of uh, the label and and everything that you guys build and currently build and have built. Um, so awesome to talk. Thank you. I appreciate it. It was a good conversation. Absolutely. Hope to catch. If you're ever in Nashville, let me let me know. I, I i love nashville where's there's not a secretly office in nashville right no no um no we're remiss um it would be uh, no new offices but if we were going to open a new office nashville would be a good one how do you how do you how do you decide when to when it's time to open up a new office it was was la the first one outside of the home base uh new york was the first then london um then chicago then austin then la then we closed austin um and uh, it's just, it's, it takes a lot of work to open an office. 
um, and to manage it and everything. And so I think we're we're pretty good right now on on, on offices. And it's although now, like the last year, we've learned to like work apart. You do lose something. Uh, it dilutes some of the energy when the more you're spread out. So it's like there's enough choices uh, for you know for people to. You walk into an, to an office somewhere, like one of the secretly offices. I mean, you're like a laid back guy, I can tell, and like not very threatening. But do you think the vibe changes when people know you're in the office? Do you think everyone works a little harder, maybe, you know, or makes them look like they're a little busier? Like, do you guess? Yeah. I don't in? think so. I don't think so. It's pretty, it's pretty, pretty chill. It's pretty yeah. chill. It's secretly. Yeah. yeah. People are, everyone's working really hard anyway. So I, I don't, I don't think that needs to happen. That's what you think. You're just seeing it. <laughs> not around it's uh all bets are off <laughs> yeah no yeah you never know you never know no i think they are the the work speaks for itself mm -hmm. chris thanks for taking the time thank buddy. you i appreciate it have all a good one talk to you soon there you have it episode 51 chris swanson thanks for tuning in thanks again to chris for taking the time to come onto the show by the way if you want a couple other stories about people creating indie labels check out some of our earlier episodes specifically there's a great episode with craig balsam who's the founder of razor and tie we also interviewed john cohen who's the founder of vagrant records lots of good stuff here check out check out the archives people you might i think you'll you'll be happy with what you find the zach kuhn show is mixed by sam Heyman, and our theme music is by justin johnson if you want more content from us, you can subscribe to my newsletter at NashvilleBriefing.com or you can follow us on socials, everything at Nashville Briefing. Thanks again for tuning in and we'll see you next time. Bye.